Hello, and welcome again to Research Chatter, a podcast sponsored by the Strategic Management Society. I'm your co-host, Ronnie Chatterjee, from Duke University in North Carolina, and I'm joined, as always, by Charlie Williams from Bocconi University in Milan. Hi, Ronnie. So good to be back in the studio recording the podcast. Apologies to our listeners for the delay with this episode. We got caught up with our day jobs, and uh, shame on us. Please think of this one as our strategy stocking stuffer for the holiday season. That's a great idea, Charlie. I've been looking for uh, those last-second gifts here in the run-up to Christmas, and I, I can't think of a better gift than the fourth episode of Research Chatter. Uh, Your this kids series, will love the, it. Yeah, the kids will love it. Grad <laughs> students, whoever, whoever, whoever you're looking for a gift at this point of the year. The purpose of the series is to highlight big ideas from business school professors from around the world. Each episode, we try to focus on one topic, where B-school researchers are uncovering new insights, and we try to translate the findings into ideas that can work in the real world. And maybe these are things you can discuss with your students if you teach this stuff like we do. The podcast, at the end of the day, is an experiment to speed up the translation process from ideas to action. We've received great feedback from many of you on our last three episodes. Uh, Charlie was proud to tell me the other day that we had over a 1,000 people download the last episode that was recorded and released on the SMS conference webpage in Denver. Please continue to share your thoughts on these discussions. We're going to go for 10,000 for this one. Charlie, what do we got lined up for today, though, for the episode? 10,000. Well, that would certainly be disruptive. Well, we're turning today to a concept that made the leap really from the pages of Strategic Management Journal to the lips of entrepreneurs and business leaders around the world. It's something that captured for so many people, I think, the promise and the threat of how companies could remake the business landscape with the rise of the internet and the spread today of digital strategies. But it's also something that's really re reached a bit the status of business cliché. So now you hear people who are using the concept but apologizing for, for, for using it in conversation or analysis. We're talking, of course, about disruptive innovation. It's an idea that is thrown about so constantly and sometimes, let's be honest, hijacks for the needs of a given pitch or presentation, so it tends to be used a bit loosely. So the first thing we want to start off with is, is what really does the theory of disruption actually say? Well, Charlie, I mean, actually getting the definition is, is very pertinent because, you know, you and I, I think we set out to disrupt the podcast industry with this particular uh, thing we're working on. And we were very happy to use it without the air quotes that you're talking about. But that really gets to a key issue, which is that to disrupt, which is basically to change anything we don't like in the world, to bring down huge bureaucracies. That's how people are using it now. But it's actually quite different than the way that Clinton Christensen, a professor at Harvard Business School, used it in his seminal work. And I just ended up teaching a case uh, using a simulation game designed by HBS where we talk about uh, disruption. And the interesting thing for my students was to kind of emphasize that, you know, it's not that these companies, these large companies like Kodak, for example, were disrupted by new entrants because they weren't smart or they didn't have good management. In fact, the theory of disruption is that the managers in the incumbent firms are paying too much attention to existing customers. It's sort of a counterintuitive thing for my students. So That's right. That's right. It's when good management actually leads to more problems. Right. And, and Charlie, we hammer home in marketing and other kind of classes that the customer is always right. Listen to your customer. Follow your customer. Don't design things without listening to your customer. I mean, that's that. Those are some of the nostrums that we push in business school. And what Christensen was saying way back then was that actually good managers who listen to their customers too much and 
ignore for very rational reasons the latent needs right of the market people who aren't yet in the market um, that's what leads to disruption and I like to give some examples of for example the telephone the early development of the telephone versus telegraphs mm-hmm. so telegraph was actually a widespread technology telephone came into being but it was no competition for the telegraph in long-distance communication. It was really good for short distance. So, of course, Western Union, the telegraph company, decided not to get into the telephone business, even though they owned some patents, thinking that it would never be good for long-distance communication. Well, what happened, as often does with disruptive technologies, telephones were great for short communication, and they eventually evolved into superior technology for long-distance as well. That's the story of disruptive innovation and the definition that I like to use in class, much different than how it's used in the popular language. Yes, that's uh, that's true. It really has slipped away from that origin. That's right. But, you know, but Charlie, the theory that Christensen put out did arise from real data, real empirical analysis of the computer hard disk industry, which is a popular one. A lot of people have looked at now. So, I mean, how does the data that he analyzed actually match the theory that he articulated? Yes, that's right. So we're, we're kicking it off with two papers today. One from Strategic Management Journal, which was his original article about this. Well, there was there was a set of them, but there was one in uh, in SMJ in particular that looked at the hard drive disk industry for the emerging computer industry. And he went in and and really examined in, in close fashion all the transitions from the beginning of when they started storing uh, storing data or selling drives that would store data for, for mainframes and how those generations evolved. So they were big 14-inch disks to begin with, and then they dropped down to, uh, I believe, 8-inch disks, and then they dropped down to 5-inch disks. It doesn't sound like this big uh, big transition. They get smaller. We're so used to that now. But he went through that data and careful case analysis, not just uh, the the statistical data, but really talked to about 70 managers, he says in the article, from every one of these companies to look at the process that uh, that they went through to to change this. Yeah, and Charlie, I mean, this gets lost, I think, on a lot of us who are reading these papers today. You know, if you're a grad student in the year 2015, and maybe you're a grad student listening to this, you can look at these older papers and books and say, oh, you know, they, they didn't have this kind of data, they didn't use this kind of technique. But to be able to get basically deep into the disk drive industry, really understand it through interviews and archival data, I mean, this is what made this body of research really impressive. And Human action comes through in a way that it often doesn't in a purely statistical study. You just feel those managers sitting in these companies and uh, and facing these challenges where they're, even the CEO is fighting to get engineers put on new projects with smaller disks that aren't appealing to their old customers. And it's a real struggle for them to keep resources committed to these new things when their existing products are so demanding and so, so but profitable. But that's the richness, Charlie, that really makes this disruptive innovation theory so alluring, those stories about the CEO fighting uh, the bureaucracy yeah, inside yeah, the company. Yeah. The- Sorry, the, I think that does explain some of the some of the success of this. So when it's when it's stepped beyond SMJ, you know, when he lines up the, just the data, it's mostly about the sequence of entry that that he says, you know, we see these market leaders and they aren't the market leaders the next time. We see more entry by new companies every time this new generation comes out, and the old leaders aren't the new leaders in this new uh, new world. It, it you know, when this, we'll talk about the next statistical analysis. But as this made the jump, as he wrote this this book, the innovator's dilemma that's based on this, that really fleshes this out and and uh, and drives it home in in such a powerful, convincing, and human fashion. It's that rich, deep knowledge of the the struggles that these managers have that has made this so compelling. 
Yeah, I mean, look, Charlie, you know, I think whether or not the theory lines up with every particular example and generation of the disk drive industry, we should look at that. But more broadly, I think what made this, uh, this theory so successful is the following. One is I think Christensen has a fantastic sense for the data that he's working with, both at the individual level, the CEOs, as well as the data points that he can put in a statistical software package. And that's really important. And that's somewhat of a lost art as we start to emphasize different things um, in our research. And, and there are good reasons for that shift as well. Secondly, you know, you can look around the world and you can look at this disruption frame and you can see a ton of things that are getting disrupted. Look at what's happening in media. Look at what's happening in entertainment, the way we consume news. Not to mention, Charlie, even business schools themselves. A lot of my students this year have come up to me and said, Ronnie, you know, you're in a dinosaur business right now. You're the mature industry. You're the Kodak. While you're paying attention to all this stuff like in-class interactions and the everyone being on one campus, these massive open online courses are proliferating. They're exactly the theory of disruption in action today in your own industry. And I think about myself, maybe I'm that CEO who's struggling to either see the threat or act against it. I mean, Charlie, what do you think? I mean, business schools, are we even getting- There you are. There you are. The last few months, spending all your time uh, teaching core strategy instead of doing this podcast like you should have been. That's right. That's right. This is is really what I should have been focused on. (laughs) Yeah. So so, um, absolutely. It's so compelling. Though, and and in fact, Christensen, I think, has been advising Harvard in their own own approach to how they should deal with- uh, the, the, the real ferment, there's clearly there's a lot of experimentation in instruction and how that can change. Now, I, I'd add a note of, note of um, skepticism here in the sense that maybe, this, maybe with education, there's some things the theory just can't get at. The, the role of social structure, the role of status really in for um, getting into schools, for getting jobs after schools, there's a whole lot of social advantages that are completely separate from technology that the top existing schools have. So they may be able to weather this period of change in, in instruction and still come out looking very pretty. But Charlie, I got to push back. I mean, think about this. In Silicon Valley right now, it's less important whether you got your computer science degree from Stanford or Santa Clara or nowhere at all, they're finding ways to test competency with assessments, meaning that if you can show that you can do the job, you can get the job. Now imagine if, and this would be true disruption, we actually had competency tests for MBAs, meaning that you could take a test at the end of business school or even not attending business school at all, the way you think about the bar exam in U.S. legal, and you could prove that you're a competent manager. If we're really serious about professionalizing management, you might think of a competency exam as being one way to do that. And wouldn't that change the whole dynamic for business? Yeah, yeah, no question. I mean, it would so change our business, and it, but it'd be really exciting in the sense that, you know, I think it would, there's no question it would really push us to up our game a lot. But I'll believe it when I see it. The top finance places, the top consulting companies, and even, say, Google and Facebook, their hiring is very heavily tilted towards elite schools. Still, the, the people in the clutch, they fall back on just measures of status. You're, you're right, Charlie. I also think, you know, some of these disruptive forces may affect schools that are lower down the list. I think for the top schools, you're right. They're, they're basically buffered by status and, and legacy and years of reputation that have been built up. But when you see a new entrant, for example, Jack Welch has started a new management school in cooperation. I think it's with Strayer, the for-profit university. When you see something like that, I think it's going to be much more likely to impact schools that are further down the U.S. News, World Report, and Business Week rankings 
means than it is at the top. Meaning that, you know, can you justify paying, you know, X tens of thousands of dollars a year for an education at a particular school when you could do it for far less at Jack Welch's Institute and have access to the same network and opportunities? I think for the top schools, that's very hard for these new entrants to really disrupt. So, you know, it could affect different strategic groups in the industry, not all of them all at once. And I, I think that's it's another true. thing It's true. But it is not an industry where we see the leading players just shying away from it. We've got Wharton putting more and more of their core MBA class up online for free. Harvard offering online uh, offerings. Coursera really emerged from from Stanford. MIT has uh, has lots of action in this. So so there's clearly the top players are are thinking about this, experimenting this, working in this in this space. And Charlie, it's because we've all studied disruptive innovation. We're all students yeah, of Clay true. Christensen. Maybe, maybe he's and, written right. the, and, rewritten and the this history. And this is the true test. If you ask any CEO today what they know about strategy, they might say the Porter's Five Forces, and I think they'd likely, likely say disruptive innovation. And the reason, I think, is so, there's something even more compelling than, than the match between the theory and the data, which is incredibly important for empirical researchers like you and I. But for I think for the practitioners especially, it's a way of looking at the world. It's a way of saying, hey, I'm going to be paranoid for any new entrants that come uh, up, uh, come down the block and thinking about could they possibly disrupt me and trying to improve my own business model, my own approach to customers, my own approach to bringing in new individuals to the market as a way to deal with that. And so I think Disruptive innovation isn't just a theory. It's a it's a kind of a way of looking at the world and competitive landscape. I think that's what's made it so exciting. You're starting to sound a little a little cultish, Ronnie. <laughs> but uh, so so I want to so on that I kind of want to bring it back to the data because because it does struggle with generalization. I guess that's been some of the the later results do call into question. It certainly appears that from generation to generation, the the old leaders don't dominate the market in the same way. And we know that's important in technology. Imagine if with the next generation of smartphones. Apple suddenly fell from its preeminence position and it was fourth in the market. We would notice. It would be important for us. It would be important for Apple. It would be important for investors. So, so that matters. But a, another paper we looked at for, for this talk was by Andrew King and Chris Tucci. They looked at the very same setting, but with a slightly different approach and a, and a more empirical, uh, statistical approach. And, and they kind of generalized it. It wasn't really framed around disruptive innovation, but they did discuss it afterwards and their, their results clearly speak to it. They look at whether the incumbents who sold more in the past few years, so the existing firms, those that had sold more were more on the high end, were they more or less likely to enter into these new emerging se segments as the disc got smaller? And then did they make more money? Well, did they sell more? So we should be careful if they did that. And their results are pretty clearly the larger the firms that were making more in the prior generations were actually more likely to enter. And if they did enter, they sold a lot more units and may have had a lot more revenues. So at least there, if we try to generalize it, even within a setting to say, okay, among these incumbents, are you more trapped by your customers? Since that's a key part of his argument, are you more trapped if you have more of them, if you are a more dominant player? And at least as far as getting into these markets, it doesn't look like that's the case. So, yeah. so it, 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 some questions emerge about how well this generalizes um, within the industry and then, of course, beyond the industry. Yeah, I, Charlie, you know, I take your point because you're right. It's easy to get excited about these ideas. I mean, what I was talking about previously was just the excitement I have in terms of the way of looking at the world. But you're kind of getting back to the reason that we're really in this business, which is to you know, not just put up ideas out there that are compelling, but actually make sure they're the right ideas and that there's mechanisms of action in the real world that we can document that's 
support those ideas. And so I think, yes. one, it's important to know, are incumbent firms, yes or no, less likely to be able to take advantage of a new generation of products? And even if they aren't, is it because of the mechanism that Christensen talked about uh, in the distrib industry? And how, how much can you generalize from that industry, right, in terms of running these things? And what you're saying is a lot of the data that's coming out and a lot of the criticism is saying, no, it doesn't line up. And even if it's popular uh, with practitioners or it has general appeal, as strategy scholars, our job is to go back and look at this and think about, is this really the right set of ideas? That's where Jill Lepore in The New Yorker really comes in as well. So this was kind of an interesting angle, Charlie, for those who don't yes, know. Yes, suddenly right. it popped into the into kind of popular press in a way yeah really in the new yorker after all this time and, uh, and a colleague at harvard no less and a historian wrote this article in the new yorker uh kind of discussing some of the, the the major critiques uh with disruptive innovation what did you make of jill lapore's article yeah so um i found it i mean it was just very interesting to see i do think it, the 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 popular use of disruption was really ripe for some backlash it had become so widespread and so loosely used and really a rallying cry for anyone who said they wanted to, uh, uh, to, to have a successful startup. You had to be disrupting something. Yes. Anything, and and so it. her, her article was a really useful, useful corrective in the sense that it said, you know, maybe this just doesn't capture even what goes on, has gone on in some of the key examples that, uh, that Christensen has used, like the, uh, like the steel industry and the the rise of the mini mills. I think what happens though is, you know, the theory was so compelling and interesting that then people ask you to apply to all sorts of different settings. And frankly, a lot of the the expansion of the word disruption, both in terms of what it covered and the frequency of how it was used, was done by other people. So almost you, you can sometimes be a victim when you have a really popular set of ideas that other people appropriate the ideas. They use it. They say, well, this looks exactly like the situation that I'm facing, that I learned about on that podcast or a business school. And so the backlash and the pushback that Lepore is doing, I mean, not everything there is related to things that were actually said in the original theory or the papers. A lot of it, I think, is the notion that everyone's using these words. It's almost been too successful. So I think this is the tension between, you know, what we do in academia and the the, the, practi the practical nature of what we do. We're in this interesting field where we have a chance, and this is what this podcast is about, to generate ideas people actually care about, people actually take seriously. Absolutely. But Absolutely. when we hand it over, when we cross the chasm and hand it over to that wall it becomes someone else's property for them to use it, for them to kind of add their own mark. And then we come back to the academic world and say, hmm, was it really as general as we think? And, and I think, yeah. by, by the way, I think that's a useful role for us. I think this is the way that research and ideas should get produced and vetted and critiqued and reinvented. Yeah. Yeah. And even, even Christensen and his co-author, Michael Rayner, they wrote the second book, The Innovator's Solution, together. They're out there in Harvard Business Review this month saying, Let's clarify, like, whoa, 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 this theory has gotten a bit beyond what uh, maybe where, where we, uh, the use of these, this concept has gotten beyond what we would, uh, would have applied it to and where the theory really describes. They use the example of Uber, where a lot of people have said Uber is disrupting the, the taxi business, and they actually say, no, it doesn't fit. It may be, really be transforming, but it, it's not really captured by our theory and what it's explaining. Yeah, I think, the, yeah, it's a great example, Charlie, just to jump in. I also think that when you apply a general theory into a myriad different phenomenon, so once you say, okay, we're going to disrupt healthcare, we're going to disrupt education, we're going to disrupt the taxi cab industry, there are experts, domain experts in those fields who are going to push back because anytime you're immersed in the details of something and someone comes with a general theory from another place, you're going to say, hey, you don't get the details. You don't understand the minutia and you, your general theory doesn't apply. And so I think also what happens, the bigger problems you take 
done, the more pushback you get from domain experts. And so I sort of see this also as a natural evolution. I know the disrupting education yes. and disrupting healthcare stuff has brought a lot of critiques back. And I think that's also because people were in those areas focused on the minutiae when these theories got applied. So that, that's my sense. And, and both can be valuable, a general frame and being in the details. Yeah. And that's really the approach of the, the third article we, we chose for this time is actually Andy King again. He's a, he's a strategy professor up at Dartmouth. He pulled together with a, a PhD student who's got a, who's, she has a very challenging name. I believe it is Batar Togtoch. And uh, sh the two of them really took all the 77 cases they could find that were used in the two books by Christensen. The first one, The Innovator's Dilemma, and the second one, The Innovator's Solution. And they went back and talked to exactly those people you're talking about, the domain experts in each industry. And they took four, four aspects of the theory that they said these cases should really match if they're actually examples of disruptive innovation, that incumbents are actually improving on the existing technology. They're on an upward technology trajectory, that the pace of this innovation in this area is actually greater than what the market needs. So that leaves some space to kind of come in behind them and succeed with something with lower performance. These incumbents could respond, but don't. And, uh, and that when this new technology emerges, this disrupting technology emerges, that they flounder, they fail to respond effectively. They go through one by one with those four, those four categories. And believe me, those, those are contested. Um, but uh, they go through those four and they, they say which proportion of these 77 cases actually fit those based on, on, uh, on interviews with, uh, with experts in the industry. And they find, you know, it's 53 out of 77 for the first, only 17 out of 77 for this, this idea that sustaining innovation is, is actually moving faster than what the market wants. Some to uh, at the end of the day, what they find is seven of the 77, only seven of them actually match all four criteria. Mm. So they raise some concerns that, that, uh, that when it's generalized to these, these concrete examples, which are so powerful and, and certainly captures something really very real about the world, that it doesn't hold up as strongly. Yeah, I mean, so Charlie, maybe we, you know, this is the part of the show where we both have to just come down on what we think about all this. I mean, yes, I want to hear. So, what do you think? Is it valid and useful still? I, I certainly think it is, and here's why. It, you know, when someone goes up for tenure or they're going to get promoted uh, in this profession, it's all about did you learn something from them, and, and did you learn something unique uh, and, and and useful? And I think with Christensen, I mean, the the true test of that is how many people continue to work on these questions, and the idea that people are coming in and testing it, and, and I think it's a great idea. I mean, I think the contributions that King and Tucci and others have made are amazing, but the idea that they're continuing this trajectory and refining it actually is a testament to me to the importance of the ideas to begin with. If it wasn't influential, if it didn't change the way people thought, both in research and practice, there would be no need to do these kinds of studies. So I think I see this as kind of the natural evolution of science. You introduce a set of ideas. Uh, they're very influential in this case, and that's kind of a one in a million thing to begin with. And then other folks come down. Sometimes they have better instruments. Sometimes they have better data. Sometimes they have a different way of looking at the world, and they try to establish boundary conditions, or they try to say that the theory isn't as general as they want. And then if you're really lucky and your idea becomes super popular, there's pushback that it's been you know too popularized. And I, I, that's, that's how I see what's happening here. And I think our contribution as scholars when we go out and talk to companies or we do podcasts like this is trying to explain to people about 
about some of these boundary conditions and say, don't don't apply this blindly. Don't just take you know one theory or one paper, um, you know, without a grain of salt. There's all this other work that's been done since the 1980s and 90s, um, and we've talked about some of these today that should also inform the way you look at this problem. So now there's a canon rather than just a few articles, and and I think that's great for science and social science, and I think it's a fantastic testament to the innovators' dilemma and all the work they came after. No kidding. So, so I, I agree completely. I, you know, in, in going back to the, the first book, just to, to prepare for this, the, the sense you get reading that book is really, here's a man at the top of his game. You know, he knows this industry so well. He's come up with such a creative and interesting understanding of what's happening there. It's not a simple story, but he manages to tell it in a, just a very clear and compelling fashion. The, the combination of of story, of theory, of, uh, of data and example. It, it's really, it's still a great read and, and, uh, incredible amount of skill went into that. I could just respect that as another, as another, uh, scholar and researcher. Sure. Summing up for me, the, the, the usefulness and validity, I think we're at the point where we need to understand it also as, as part of a broad array of research, especially at that time that really highlights how powerful inertia can be for large established firms. Christensen, more than anyone, really highlighted that inertia isn't just about stupid and lazy big firms. As you said right from the beginning, inertia arises even, maybe even especially, when managers are doing their jobs really well. So that, that part's very powerful. And when you lay it against all the other ways that we've studied inertia and how big firms get held back, we really have this sort of array of under, so this broad understanding that this is something that, that firms struggle with constantly. As a theory of entry, well, there are many ways to enter niches and then expand. The very specifics of the comparative cost structures of sustaining versus disruptive innovations, these may not generalize as much as we originally thought or hoped. But the basic actions that the theory suggests for new entrants find a niche with, the, with unique needs that mayor, major players can't or won't serve very efficiently, and that remains quite valid. So, in some ways, the action implications of the theory really hold up even when some of the predictive mechanisms don't completely. But I guess the final thing I would point to is our collective love affair. I mean, we from throughout business, we are so have just loved using this concept. And it's been kind of the rallying cry of entrepreneurs who want to take over the, uh, new industries, establish successful new businesses. It has maybe obscured what's increasingly clear, this impor important empirical trend that incumbents appear to be becoming more powerful, not less. While we're all crying out about disruption, the, the rate of startups has fallen, the, the failure rates of startups have fallen, the growth rates of the, most, uh, the fastest growing firms, and, and this is something that, that merits attention that maybe hasn't gotten it for the last 10 years. Yeah, and Charlie, I mean, two things to pick up that you said I think were really useful uh, among many. One was this notion about the existing theories of inertia. You know, sometimes you'll read these things as a grad student in 2015, and you'll say, wow, I don't understand, you know, these citations, or what is the conversation that this this article or book is about. But for those of us who've read it in the original kind of form, maybe in a working paper or something like that, you, or have the context, you say, oh, so at the time, the big debate was over X and Y, and this person is on Y's side, and this is what they're pushing up against. Later on, you completely lose that thread because the context is completely different. So I think that's one thing. You wonder why they spent all this time in these books talking about some random theory or some set of papers you don't know about anymore. It's because they were trying to basically oppose or kill that theory to establish their own. Secondly, I think you're really right about sort of the seriousness with which we have to take our job. So 
I think your points at the end of the day about, you know, it, it's it's it stands to reason that incumbents might actually be increasing their advantage. And if the startup rate is going down, lots of different ways to measure that. But if it is indeed going down, well, then all the no, the general notion that we're disrupting everything is probably wrong. And we should go out there and talk to executives and practitioners and policymakers and say, here's a theory. You might believe that this is the theory that's unfolding across the world, but actually a lot of the data is pointing in a different direction. Let's go back and understand where the theory might be improved. And here's King and Tucci and these other papers. And also let's understand why there might be boundary conditions. This was done in, a, in one specific industry at a specific point in time. And so that's kind of where I come down. It's a valuable starting place and sparked a whole set of questions, but we have to keep moving forward and keep ourselves honest. So I think yes. you've influenced me over the course of the podcast to kind of put an exclamation point on the last thing there as well. So that that's where new, I think we new questions. Out. Many it's really exciting how a lot of new questions that need to be answered. Sure. So now it's uh, time to move to uh, at least my favorite part of the podcast. I, I actually don't know if, if if it's other people's favorites, Charlie. We should we should give a survey and see what people like. I mean, you it's know, true, but true. this Let is uh, know. this is the part where we wonder, and it's it's basically the water cooler conversation that you have with colleagues, uh, where you think about, hey, I wonder about this particular research topic. And as we all know, this is what makes being an academic super fun. Um, we get to do it uh, on our podcast. Um, so, Charlie, would you want to start talking about what you're wondering about this week? Sure, I'd be happy to. And it's building off our discussion of disruption. It's even more navel-gazing, say, than discussing about uh, about whether business school education and uh, intuition <laughs> is being disrupted. I'm also really interested in how online knowledge sharing might change research. There's been a lot of interesting discussion lately about how well peer review actually works, the amount of time it introduces, especially in social science papers, it can introduce a lot of time. And there are emerging online models where sort of low review, low overhead publishing happens in, in archives like, well, Archive and Plus One. But where there's just a little review and your impact is more about some papers get a lot more reaction than others. The, it might be an example of a, of a place where disruption could really happen. For one thing, because as the fields of social science become more concerned with false positive, actually just raising the bar for publishing might actually have perverse effects that we see fewer and fewer of the marginal results. So it's harder to go back across many studies and actually decide definitively what's really going on if we're publishing fewer. And even the search for significance, as it were, becomes more, more intense. On the other hand, we do also see some models where more managed and curated uh, academic publications can be quite successful as well. And for me, this was really highlighted, I think, last week, Vox.com, one of the newer online publications, did an interesting kind of journalistic summary of, you know, what are the problems with peer review? And they pointed out that the New England Journal of Medicine, the most influential journal in, in health research, is actually heavily edited by professional editors. They use academic peer review as a first but somewhat low bar round, and then they work very hard to actually select the articles they'll put in and shape them so that they're really useful both for researchers and for the doctors who rely on that research to, to care for patients. So I, I think it will be really interesting. I don't know if this is going to be disruption. I think it's may, we may end up with a very interesting ecosystem where we have the same sorts of peer-reviewed journals we've had, some online archives which function really differently, and then maybe some some academics, a more academic than a Harvard Business Review, but heavily edited and curated uh, journals that are out there. I look forward to, to seeing and finding out. 
Yeah, Charlie, you know, I'm wondering about the same thing. I mean, this this topic that we've been talking about today makes me wonder if everything that we do in regards to research is going to change in the next, let's say, 10 to 20 years. For example, I mean, the way we share research ideas through conferences, for example, I mean, you know, we, we have these working papers that get disseminated after, you know, quite a bit of work, uh, working on the data, working on the front end, and then presenting to our colleagues. But the speed of which ideas are being exchanged is much, much faster in the real world. It's being accelerated as people share ideas uh, in short bursts of characters on Twitter or on status updates on Facebook. Now, complex ideas like the ones we try to work on might not be amenable to that, but that might be to our detriment if we're not able to share ideas as quickly as they are in other in other spheres. Secondly, into this point is like, you know, the research infrastructure is changing a lot too. There's a lot of research expertise being built up in companies related to social science now. So you know the number of companies in Silicon Valley that now have not just data scientists, but chief economists. And so I wonder if with the, the amazing amount of data that these big companies have and the brains they have in the company, if we're going to see a push towards more research that is both academic and practical in nature being produced inside companies and change the role of the traditional university and also change the interface between universities and companies. You're already seeing some high-profile academics leave universities for big companies, and you're seeing a lot of those collaborations. So the whole model is another thing to to think about and and calling into question. So the way we do our job now, right, in the teams that we work in now, with the people we work on with now, with the identities we have, and the way we share them could be much, much different in the future. And it's something that, frankly, I'd love to be on top of, but I'm not, I wouldn't even know where to start, right? So maybe I'm like the CEO that we talked about at the beginning, where I'm just doing the same thing over and over again and expecting the same result and hoping that I don't get disrupted, at least in my lifetime. (laughs) Well, I hope not to. Okay. I believe that brings us to the end of our fourth edition of uh, of Research Chatter. If you liked it and you want to hear more, subscribe on iTunes and and please spread the word. We'd like to get the word out that that we're doing this and it's, uh, it's a valuable resource. Our online home is at strategicmanagementsociety.wordpress.com. There you can find links to all the papers we discuss, plus our contact info, Twitter accounts. And please hop online. Let us know what you think. Yeah, in the comments, on Twitter, on the Society's Facebook page. This is totally new. It's an experiment. Uh, We're hoping you can tell us the things you find most interesting and useful. Thanks for listening. Goodbye for now from North Carolina and Milan.